Good morning, everyone. How are you doing today? Good. Um, as everyone said, uh, happy Advent season to you, and um, I hope you are enjoying this uh, fall weather again. Uh, it's either one extreme or the other, uh, so I know it's a bit toasty in here today. Um, other times it's cold, so, you know, it's just how it is. Thanks for coming to worship anyway. So, <laughs> guys, it's good to be here with you, and it's, it's, really, it's just really just a privilege to be in this Advent season together because we get to focus on uh, the center of our faith, Jesus, his coming, his birth, um, and his redemptive work. And so I hope you've um, uh, been able to enjoy it thus far, uh, even with the Thanksgiving you got to celebrate with uh, family and friends. And uh, beyond that, uh, we're going to be pressing through the Christmas season together as a church family. And uh, what we've been doing is we've been going through a new series called Fulfilled. And that series is uh, talking about Jesus and how his life fulfilled the many prophetic utterances, the many predictions, uh, the good news predictions that were coming about the Savior of the world, who is coming not only in fulfillment of all the uh, Old Testament uh, Jewish prophecies, but he would also um, extend himself to the rest of the world, the Gentile world, um, to come as their Messiah as well, their Savior as well. And so when we're here to celebrate the Advent season, we're celebrating this thing. So um, guys, wanted to um, let you know that uh, we have uh, several people uh, just in need of uh, prayer over the course of uh, the holiday season. So even though it's going to be a celebratory time, we just ask you, even if you don't know them by name, to cover the church family um, in prayer, um, both in terms of health, um, in terms of uh, uh, their well-being and the like. It can be a difficult season for uh, people as well. And so um, please just be in prayer uh, as well for people who are going through during this time. So... Um, God, we, let's just begin with a word of prayer. We could uh, just pray generally. Father, we thank you uh, so much for your uh, good news um, towards us that, uh, Lord, your salvation, your sozos, is applied to every area of our, life and, uh, our lives. And God, we're asking you that during this season as we celebrate your coming and your salvation, that, uh, God, you would work out your salvation um, in the lives of your people, that you would cover them with healing that you would cover them uh, with encouragement, that you would cover them with a, even a lifting of their head to the hope eternal that they have in Christ Jesus. Lord, for uh, family and friends that we're believing for, God, we're asking that you would turn them during this season uh, to the light of the gospel, uh, that friends and family members that do not know you might come to know Jesus as the living God, that people might be saved and um, enter into eternal life even as we celebrate this holiday season. So God, we we thank you for your word today, and we ask that you would open our eyes to see how you fulfilled it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so what we're going to do today is we're going to continue this uh, fulfilled uh, series by continuing sort of the apologetic that we have throughout the scripture. And when we talk about apologetics, what we're talking about is a defense of the faith, okay? It's sort of like people um, get, make declarations about God, but there are also reasons that we believe, right? Um, whenever Peter was writing in First uh, Peter 3.15, he was writing a letter, a general letter to the church, and he said, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. And thinking about the Advent calendar and even the Advent season, the first season... Um, 
um, or I'm sorry, the first Sunday that we really have to celebrate the Advent season is usually called the Advent Sunday of hope, looking forward to the hope that we have in the gospel of Christ. But there is a reason for the hope that we have. Not only have we encountered Jesus personally, which, you know, many people can think at times is subjective, uh, but there's also an objectivity to our faith as well. There's an objective reality to Jesus Christ fulfilling the prophecies that were declared throughout the scripture, throughout the generations. And what we see is that um, part of the apologetic or the defense of the faith that shows us that God is in fact who he said he is, is that these prophetic writings and these prophetic utterances occurred over the course of hundreds of years uh, by men in various, oh, thank you. Everyone, this is my wife, B. Can you give her a hand, please? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Han. Um, <clears throat> these prophetic utterances came over the course of hundreds of years, but from people in various socioeconomic backgrounds, people who were dealing with things at different times, and they were in different stations of life. They were military generals, some of them. Some of them were statesmen. Some of them were shepherds. Some of them were fishermen. And all of these different socioeconomic statuses and all of these different time periods in which they found themselves, you would have thought that people in different generations at different times had different mentalities and different ways of viewing and approaching the world, right? So the way that we, as an example, approach Approach the world um, as modern Westerners is different than the way that people back 400 years ago approached things in maybe another part of the world or in other regions of the world. We, they had different mentalities towards community and life and values and importance. But one of the apologetics of Scripture is that through all of the prophetic writings, through all, all of the prophecies over the hundreds of years for people from different backgrounds, you see them talking about God in the same way. And you see them talking about the same theme of his redemption and the same theme of his salvation. And nothing contradicts to, to the uh, contrary of what many people say. People a lot of times throughout this thing where they say the Bible contradicts itself. When you actually open the scripture and read it, Genesis to Revelation, it's an ongoing story that actually fits together and does not dis I mean, disconnect itself or contradict itself, but it all affirms one thing upon another, precept upon precept, book upon book, generation after generation. And one of the apologetics is, is that he's continually talking about the same God, the same redemption, the same Messiah who would come no matter where the source is that they're coming from. So last week we talked um, about a prophetic word that came through a man named Isaiah who preached 700 years before Jesus showed up on the scene. Um, but today we're going to extend uh, one of those fulfilled prophecies, not only to Isaiah, but to a man named Malachi. And if you've ever read uh, the book of Malachi, it's the last book in the Old Testament uh, before you get to the New Testament. And so what we see is that he was the last prophet before what we call the intertestamental period. And what it, that is in the church is a 400-year period of perceived silence before Jesus came on the scene. Bef when the prophets stopped writing or stopped actually recording um, their prophetic ministry of the Messiah's coming. And then 400 years later, Jesus shows up on the scene in the midst of the Roman Empire. But this Malachi, in his last testament, these last prophetic words about the Messiah who was to come, has the same interwoven predictions about this Messiah who would come. And he is also going to show us not only was the Messiah coming, but there was a forerunner who was coming before him, which we see fulfilled in Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. So if you have a Bible today, turn with me to Malachi chapter 2, verses 17 
through chapter 3, verse 5. We're going to talk about God's fulfilled word today in terms of his righteous judgments, number two, his redemption, and then finally his rest. His righteous judgments, number two, his redemption, and then finally, number three, his rest. All right, this is Malachi. He said, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So whenever we're looking through these scriptures of fulfillment, what we see is that he, in this particular passage, is talking about two people. He's talking about the Christ who would come and, in essence, what the Christ or the Messiah would do when he comes. And when he appears and when he shows up, he's going to bring back a deep-seated need that we have in all of our hearts, which is a return of righteous judgments. In the cultures in which we find ourselves, in the cultures in which we live, um, it is easy the more that you're exposed to things that are not of God to lose a sensitivity to that which God himself cares about. But I love how our worship team and also Cole were talking this morning, talking about bringing Jesus back to the center of it all, right? Bringing Jesus back to the place of preeminence, bringing him back to the place of uh, actual worship, and bringing him back to a place where his standard becomes our standard once again. Part of the Advent season is coming back to a place where we see God as the one who dictates and also defines what is of value and what's not of value in our lives. What is righteous and what's not righteous in our lives. Because what Malachi is talking about here is that from the very beginning, the progression of culture and the progression of scripture is that eventually that which God calls good will be spoken of as evil. And that which is evil in our cultures around us will be spoken of as good. And I think that you can see that in the generation that we have around us. 
50 years ago when we see, or 60 or 70 years ago, your grandparents' generation, whenever you think about the standards that were norms in culture, you see that they're very different than the standards and the norms that are in culture today. And the reason being that there was more of an ascribing to the Word of God and His standards than we have in our particular generation. But now whole campaigns are being wrought against not only God, but also His Word, and therefore the very things that God and His Word describes as not good are being declared as good. And the things that are described by God as not good are being described as good within our culture. How many people have experienced some of that before? You experience it on a daily basis in the midst of the culture in which we live, in the conversations that you have, in the media that you read, in all of the things that um, are affecting our thinking on a daily basis. But what we see is the good news of the Advent season is that when this messenger comes, when this messenger um, rather came, he was preparing the way for the Lord in such a way that the Lord who would appear would return us like a refiner's fire and bring us back to understanding what's right in his sight and what's actually evil or wicked in his sight and have us turn our hearts back towards those things. Now, the heart of this is that, the heart of this is that, number one, this was fulfilled this was ultimately fulfilled. These righteous judgments were fulfilled in John, um, I'm sorry, these righteous uh, requirements were fulfilled in John the Baptist. He came as a messenger, even as Isaiah talked about in Isaiah chapter 40, verses three, to, uh, three through eight. He says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And in the midst of that, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken, and a voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh are like grass, and all beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And so what we see is that this, this messenger, this forerunner, forerunner of Jesus Christ, who would be like the launderer's soap, returning us to righteous judgments, he was preparing the way of the Lord by actually leveling, giving us a playing field that once again we can look at things objectively. Regardless of what it is that our culture has thrust upon us, we need to have thoughts where we're reasoning with the God of heaven where we're reasoning with the God of heaven and not just the people around us or not just the tides that are around us. We need to come to a place, as in Isaiah, where he says, come now and let us reason together. Don't just get your thoughts or your insights from people who dislike me or those who don't know me or, in fact, sometimes hate me. Get your thoughts from me, and in that place, I'll be like a refiner's fire to you. Now, what does a refiner's fire do? We've talked about the refiner's fire before, but there was a messenger who was John the Baptist who came preaching that Jesus the Messiah would come, and then there was Jesus, the actual Messiah, who came after him. But when he came, as Malachi talked about, he came as a refiner's fire. And when you think about a refiner's fire with gold, what it does is the whole process is meant to bring up and take out impurities from the metal. 
And so you have a beautiful chunk or a beautiful, I see many of you like have jewelry on today and it's actually sparkling and glittery and nice, you know, you take your jewelry to whatever, Jared's, it's like, this is from Jared's, you know, and it's almost like you get it shined and um, buffed and everything like that so that it sparkles. But the thing about it is before you ever put it on your hand or on your finger or around your neck, it went through a refining process because in the earth, what you see is that it's mixed together with various other elements. And those elements make the metal itself impure. But what the refiner's fire does is that it heats up the metal in such a way and at su- to such a degree that the impurities begin to separate from the actual metal that you're trying to get as the pure essence or the pure gold that you want to wear or that you want to utilize. When God was coming as a refiner's fire, he said that I'm coming to separate and I'm coming to um, um, bring about a purity in my people in such a way that I'm going to separate from them the things that are of me and the things that are not of me. The things that have identified them that are of me and the things that have identified them that are not of me. And what happens is, is in Scripture, we see over and over again that the things that begin to affect people's thinking and identify them are the things that are surrounding them on a daily basis. And I cannot say this enough. It is what surrounds you on a daily basis that begins to bring in impurities in your life that you don't even recognize or you become insensitive to. Whenever you look at a piece of gold and it hasn't been refined, you can still see an element of the gold in it, but you don't know what, to what extent the impurities have gotten in until you begin to heat it up. And then when it begins to get heated up, then the separation begins to occur. And then what the impurities are, are dross. You've heard that term before, dross that get wiped out and separated. Now, when God comes and Jesus came preaching righteousness and righteous judgments, as Malachi was talking about, he began to preach against the things that the culture had blended into the community of faith, the community of God that they began to declare as good, even though God described it as evil. So when he's Malachi's talking, he's talking about things like adultery. He's talking about oppressing the workers. He's talking about not caring about the widow and the fatherless. He's, not, he's talking about things like not caring for the sojourner, which is the alien in your midst. All of these things affect us today, right? I thank God for people like the Grimmings who were just working with um, a safe families organization and actually taking in the fatherless and the, the, um, those in need at times. Or Christina, who's a foster mother now, that we're pure and faultless religion is this, to care for orphans and widows and to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. What's he talking about? Those impurities that come in. But what God does in bringing Jesus the Messiah back is he begins to not only preach righteous judgments to turn people back to the things that God cares about, but then he also brings circumstances that will increase the intensity of heat in our lives and circumstances often bring out impurities more than any spoken word can. Do they not? 
when God allows circumstances or situations in our lives that are uncomfortable or that challenge the things that we've put our identity in outside of him. And what we see is that those things are stripped from us. All of a sudden, the impurities come to the surface and that which we put confidence in outside of God is revealed and shown for what it is and God comes to wipe away the dross, the things outside of him that are taking our attention and our affection from him so that once again we can look to him as preeminent. We can look to him as the most important. We can look to him as the one that is worthy of worship in our lives. So one way or another, through his preaching, through a messenger, or number two, through circumstances, he comes like a refiner's fire. And the refiner's fire comes to take away the dross. The refiner's fire comes and challenges the things that we've found most important in our lives. And for some of us, it's our relationship. Meaning even not just your romantic relationship, but the friendships that you've had. Saying that I put most important in my life my friendships with the people who surround me. For some of you, it is a romantic relationship. For some of you, it's your finances. For some of you, it might be your beauty. For some of you, it might be your health. For some of you, it might be your children, which are all great things. But if they become the ultimate thing in your life, then it becomes dross because it takes away the worship of God, turning your attention to the worship of the things he's given you rather than the giver himself. And the refiner's fire comes at times, not just through preaching, but also through circumstances to bring out of our hearts what is it that you've put your trust in outside of me. Because when I come, I'm coming to return myself to the center. And the question of the Advent season is, is that as the messenger has already come to prepare the way of the Lord, what is it that you've put as preeminent in your life, in your identity, that ultimately when the refiner's fire comes, he's coming to burn out? What is it that's most important to you? Is God an additive? Or is he, at, as the song says, the center of it all? The point of Advent is he wants to return to be the center of it all. Oswald Chambers, in his uh, great book, we're going to refer to him throughout the Advent season, My Utmost for His Highest. He says this, that in the midst of the refiner's fire, he said, a child of the light, when they see circumstances or the message challenging the foundation of their faith, challenging the foundation of their lives, and they see that they're off. A child of the light confesses instantly and stands bared before God, saying, you know what? The refiner's fire has come, whether through preaching, like you're reading the Bible, and you see that your heart condition is off from that which God is requiring, or you're sitting and preaching and you find that you've been in sin in some manner and the Holy Spirit is convicting you and you need to turn from that thing, 
or through your circumstances, you find yourself separating yourself from God or finding yourself less passionate about him because the challenge in your life has brought about that something that was in your life, whether it be the relationship, the finances, the friends, or whatever was taken from you, and therefore you begin to decrease your worship of God because your worship of God was dependent on having those things. And he says, listen, when, you, when a child of light finds this out and what it is that's impure about their faith, they confess instantly and turn from it. While a child of the darkness says, oh, I can explain that away. I can explain why the things that are so important to me that it's taking me away from God and the worship of God should remain that, in that manner. He also went on to say Oswald Chambers and my utmost for his highest, He says that the real battle is this. Satan does not tempt us necessarily to do wrong things. Many times people think that the devil's influence in someone's life is just to overtly sin in manners that the Bible describes as sin. But Satan does not tempt us to do wrong things. He tempts us in order to make us lose what God has put into us by generation. For example, the possibility of being of value to God. He does not come on the line of tempting us to sin, but on the line of shifting the point of view. And only the Spirit of God can detect this as a temptation of the devil. You see, what he's saying is, I'm not telling you to go out and be an adulterer if Satan's coming to tempt you. He's not saying, I'm tempting you to go out and murder someone or to steal. I'm tempting you to shift your point of view so that the impurities become your focus. The things that are not of God become the ultimate things rather than Jesus himself. But what's redemptive about the Messiah coming is that he came to put all of that back into right order. And whenever we see John the Baptist, his father, talking, we see him in great adulation and praise of God because for years, even though he he and his wife were faithful servants of the Lord, they had held from them one of the dearest and most important aspects of their hope and their faith in God, which was childbearing. And over the course of their many years, they were clinging to God and the worship of God, understanding that when the Messiah came, he would come to fulfill not only his word, but he would come to redeem that which they had, in their own experience, had metaphorically lost. And he says, I'm coming in a redemptive manner. I'm coming in a redemptive manner to restore that which is important, not only to me, but also what's important to you. And we see this in Luke 1, starting in verse 67. There was a fulfillment of that Malachi scripture with both the messenger and the message that he preached in John the Baptist. It said in verse 67, and his father, meaning John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed He has visited and redeemed his people. When John the Baptist came on the scene after many of years, even in his old age, he was given as a gift to his parents from the Lord. He said he has redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies, and from the hand of all who hate us, 
to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Holiness meaning being set apart to him. That's what Oswald Chambers was referring to, right? This focus and the perspective of the temptation is to say, I want to be of value to God. That's right perspective of value to um, um, his purposes. The wrong perspective that Satan tempts us with is, you know, I'll have God as a part of my life, but he won't be the central aspect of my life. I'll have God and he'll bless whatever I put my hands to, but he won't necessarily be the driving force behind my decisions, my pursuits, and all that I'm going after in all of my days. That's the holiness that he's speaking of and righteousness, the right judgments, doing things in a right manner before him, obeying his commandments, right? And he says, and you, child, speaking to his son, speaking to John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. What's he talking about? He's just talking about the fulfillment of that Isaiah prophecy, the fulfillment of that Malachi prophecy. You're going to go before him to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. All of these terminologies are so important to those who sit in darkness, meaning they don't even know that they're off from the things that God himself values. When you can't see clearly, you're stumbling and you don't know why. How many people have gotten up in the middle of the night before just to you know, get a drink of water or something and almost fallen down a set of stairs before. Anybody at all? Or kicked a dog and, you know, or something like that. Maybe you're going after that. But listen, the thing is, is that we've all done it in the darkness, right? But what the Messiah does is he comes to illuminate for us that which is actually important to him. Open our eyes. In the shadow of the valley of death, what is he talking about? Meaning that those things that are sin can be affecting us and they could be leading us to our death and we don't even realize it. The shadow of death, it's looming, right? If you, for instance, perpetually find yourself giving yourself to things that the world is saying is good, but God himself is saying evil, you're seeing your life deteriorate because of sin, step by step, and you don't know why, because everyone around you is affirming it as good, but God said it was evil, and you don't know why until you're exposed once again to the scripture that brings you out of the darkness and into the light. And that's what the Messiah does. He says, I'm showing you once again how to have a proper, here's a good term for you, it's a biblical term, work-life balance. Isn't that a good one? Work-life balance, where you actually give yourself to the things that are important to God first, and then you actually have space, and here's another good word, sanity enough. Sanity enough to enjoy the life that he's given you that comes out of serving him. But you have to come out of the darkness and into the light to be guided into the way of peace. Zechariah was the messenger, preaching that to fulfill it, but then also giving us the great expectation that we could serve the Lord without fear. 
that if we choose to obey his ways and do things according to his priorities, we do not have to fear missing out on the things that are actually valuable to him. For instance, let's just go back to the work-life balance. When you actually give yourself first to God and then to your family, you might think, I'm going to be overlooked for such and such promotion, or I'm going to be overlooked for such and such pay rate or increase. But what God says is put me first, your family second, and your ministry third, right? And then all of these other things will be added to you. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear, because I know you have need of all of these things. But seek first. Seek first. It's just a matter of priority. The kingdom of God and his righteousness, doing things in right order. And then all of these other things that you've been pursuing will be added to you. And matter of fact, when you get them, you'll actually have some sanity about you, some peace about you to enjoy them. Because you're doing it in the order that God himself provides. Or how about this? After conquering um, a mountain, after many years, I mean, many of us have come from families where it's almost like our parents were a passing shadow in the night. But conquering their mountain and at the end of the day having nobody to share it with because they didn't do things in right order, righteousness. But God's saying, come back to the way of peace that I have for you. And you can do it, serve me, without fear, in holiness and righteousness. You could also do it without fear, because God will empower you, give you the internal strength to obey him and his commandments. I don't know if many of you are watching um, this uh, NBC series, This Is Us. Has anyone seen that show before, This Is Us? Okay, has anybody binged recently? Okay, has anybody used a whole box of Kleenex on one episode? Like every episode, right? It's like, okay, so here's the thing. How many people remember the recent episode um, called The Most Disappointed Man? Anybody remember that one? Okay, it was talking about, if you're not familiar with This Is Us, it's a show about a family of, uh, I guess a family of five, and uh, this family like was going to have triplets, and then these triplets, one of the triplets actually died in the midst of childbirth. And what was great about it is that in the midst of the dying and childbirth, um, the one child who died was replaced by another child that was adopted that was adopted. And so there was a redemptive story to it, okay? But the child who was adopted was given up by a father who was at the time uh, involved in drug addiction and things of that nature. And so in this particular episode of This Is Us, they're going through the story of the father and how he's trying to get his life straight. And he's appearing after many years, showing up before the judge. And the judge basically looks at him and says, hey, listen, I'm you know, you really had no previous record. You were an upstanding citizen. You did all these things right. And now you're here in front of me. I'm disappointed with you. And the whole premise of that particular episode, he said, you're disappointed. I'm the most disappointed man you've ever met. I've lost my mother. I've lost my um, girlfriend. I've, I've, I've just lost my baby. You know, my life is falling apart. You're telling me you're disappointed in me. I'm doing these things because I'm the most disappointed man you've ever met. 
And some of us, because of that refiner's fire and life circumstances, we find ourselves giving ourselves over to things we wouldn't otherwise think about because we've been disappointed by life circumstances. We've been disappointed by the cards that we've been dealt. And what this judge does is that struck him. He would normally just sentence the man to his you know, jail sentence and be done with him. But his response in that particular episode struck the judge. So he called for him in an unordinary manner, and he asked to meet with him prior to the sentencing in his chamber. And he said to him, listen, I want you to remember this. I want you to know that just because I'm I'm disappointed with you, I believe that you could do something better. I believe that you could be more than what you have fallen into right now. And he says, in the midst of you being tempted, I know you're going to leave this place and be tempted, but I want to be the one to give you, I'm paraphrasing now, but I want to be the one to give you a second chance. I want to give you a second chance. And next time you're seeing yourself about to go into that drug binge, next time you're about to see yourself go into that alcohol binge, next time you're seeing yourself go into that, basically for our purposes, sin binge, I want you to remember, and he said of himself, my fat, ugly face. And I want you to remember it. And whenever you think about doing what's wrong, I want you to see my face. And I want you to turn and do what's right. And when I saw that particular episode, I was like, if God is not finding a way to get the gospel into everything, I don't know what is. Because all of a sudden, I was reminded of this refiner's fire. I was reminded of the fact that that's exactly the gospel and the good news that he gives to us in his redemptive nature and his redemptive purposes. He says, I know you've all sinned. And I know for various reasons you deserve death and you've made certain choices that are destroying not only your life and others because you put other things as more important than me. But I'm telling you, I want you to look at my face again. I want you to look to me again. I want you to see my face. And when in the middle of those decisions, you're tempted to go astray and you're tempted to put other things as more important than me, I want you to see me. And in the midst of seeing me, you'll make a choice that actually is right and life-giving rather than death the death to your soul. He says, I want you to remember my face. And so he, what he does is he pardons the man, he exonerates that father, and the father goes out living his life trying to get clean. And then in the midst of him trying to get clean, we see subsequent scenes where he's once again on the street corners where people are selling the rock, right? People are selling the drugs and everything. And then his temptation is to go right back into those things, putting more important in his life the things that have destroyed his life rather than the opportunity that he's been given. And what happens is that that man, that judge's face shows up in his mind's eye. That judge's face shows up in his mind's eye. And because he sees the judge again, instead of going to the corner where he once again once would, would have purchased the drugs, he goes and he turns away and he walks away. And he says, without fear, I know that I could have, like, live a different life. Without fear, I know that I could place, most important, the opportunity that I've been given. Been given. In our, our context, it's once again when we see the face of Jesus, the Messiah, who's come despite the refining fire that's brought to the surface all the impurities in our life. We can serve him without fear because we see his face and can turn from the things that were ultimately destroying us. He says, fix your eyes on Jesus. In Hebrews, the author and perfecter of your faith, 
who for the joy set before him scorned the cross, enduring its shame. It cost him something, but it says he fixed his eyes on the Father. And we're to fix our eyes on Jesus. And in the midst of fixing our eyes on him, he'll do a redemptive work in our lives that buys back, purchases back all the pain that we brought upon ourselves or were the result of others' choices before us. He's like, I'll come and redeem your life. I'll buy it back from death. I'll buy it back from tragedy. I'll buy it back from disappointment. Because ultimately, in me, you won't be identifying yourself by the things that I give you. You'll be identifying yourself in me. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the life giver. I'm the one who gives you joy. I'm the one who contextualizes it all for you and says that I'm giving it importance because it's found in me. In me is life. In me, you'll have resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. This is what he says. I'm giving this to you by my coming and redemption. But I come first with a refiner's fire to bring out the impurities and then I come to redeem that which was broken and lost. This is the Messiah's work and that which he comes to fulfill. And ultimately, he through that brings us into rest where we don't have to fend for or fight for ourselves or our place in this world anymore. It's not salvific, our repentance, turning to him from the unimportant things. But it is the response to that salvation. Oswald Chambers says, it is not repentance that saves me, but it's repentance that is the sign that I realize what God has done in Christ Jesus. I turn because I realize what he's already done for me. I turn because he's come as the launderer's soap. He's come as the refiner's fire to separate me. And I know this is hard to get in only a moment, but he's come to separate me from finding my value in that which is unimportant to him. He's saying, I want you to be found in me. And then from that place, do all things. So when you say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, you're doing it in the context of its proper biblical context, whether in plenty or in want whether having all that I had as a gift from him or being all taken away. I'm like Job who can say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Why? Because he remains the same. He's good. He's the one who's come. And my foundation is in him. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All else is sinking sand. All else. And he's saying, if I could just allow the Advent season to refine my heart like fire. Then I'll actually find some rest. And for those of you who've come from a liturgical background, there's something called the Book of Common Prayer. How many people have heard of the Book of Common Prayer before? It's great in liturgical settings. And on the first Sunday of the Advent season, in many Anglican settings, this is a prayer that they pray. And I I ask you in your heart of hearts just to listen and to pray it as we go back into worship. The prayer is, Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light now in the time of this mortal life in which thy Son Jesus Christ came to visit us in great humility that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the quick and the dead, 
we may rise to the life immortal through him who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Ghost now and forever. Amen. It's about you, Jesus. Everything else is sinking sand and I want to look to you in your face that I might receive your redemption and serve you without fear all my days. It's all good news in Jesus' name. Amen? All right, worship team, let's go.